Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. We started chapter 9 last week, dealt with the subject of uh, predestination. If you remember from last week's lesson, God's plan did not fail just because some of the Jews rejected Christ. Remember the structure. We got to the end of chapter 8. It's kind of the end of the first half of the book, the theology half of it. Chapter 12, we're going to pick up with the practical application of what do we do about this. But in between chapters 9, 10, and 11 is a discussion about what about the Jews. Paul is a devout Jew. He begins chapter 9 with, if it were possible... I would be willing to be damned in order to save my brethren, the Jews. So, since God is showing up with this idea of justification by faith alone, does that mean that the plan for the Jews is null and void? Did God's plan just not work? And that's what he deals with in chapters 9 10 and 11. And as we saw, his plan did not fail because not everyone who is of Abraham is really in the covenant family. And remember, we had Abraham and his son Isaac and his earlier son Ishmael. Isaac was in, Ishmael wasn't. Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was in, Esau wasn't. Remember the passage. Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated. And that's what got us into the discussion of the election, the predestination, the fact that God has chosen some before they had done anything good or bad. God is sovereign even over salvation. And we had a discussion last week about some of the objections because they're all addressed in chapter 9. Does this mean that God is unjust? No, God is perfectly just. The last bullet up there. God is just. No one receives injustice from the hands of God. The fact that God bestows mercy on some does not mean that he is being unjust unjust to anyone. And that's the third point. God is merciful, but he is sovereign in his mercy. And I commented last week that this bothers a lot of us and it prompts all kinds of discussions. I had discussions at work this week about it when I told people what I was teaching. And uh, as I've gotten older, I get less emotional about the arguments. So if you want to argue with it, we can do it, you know, all day long, but I'm not going to be that emotional about it. But we did have a couple of questions that popped up last week. And we'll cover those just very briefly. Number one, somebody raised the question, where is Don? Doesn't the scripture say that God does not show partiality? It sounds like he's being very partial. He's choosing some and he's not choosing others. Therefore, isn't that by definition partiality? Yes. Next question. We need to understand what partiality means. If you go back to the Old Testament, when they're 
choosing leaders for the people, one of the requirements for those who are going to judge people is that they not show partiality when looking at the law and looking at the offense and making a judgment on it. For example, I'm a judge and someone comes before me who has been caught doing something and I read the law, I look at the evidence, and I declare judgment. But let's say that person who's coming before me is my son. I look at the law, I look at the evidence, and if I am an impartial judge, I give the same answer whether the person is my son or is a perfect stranger. In my position as judge, I judge impartially. Now, I go home at the end of the day, and my son comes home for dinner, and the stranger doesn't. There is a difference in the relationship, even though in my function as judge, I judge impartially. God looks at the law, and you and me and everyone else are guilty. He judges us impartially. As judge, he is impartial. He doesn't look at one group of people and say, I know you sinned, but I don't care. We've talked about this in the whole book of Romans. It isn't that you sinned and he turns a blind eye to it. What happens is he sins, but he pays the penalty for that sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when he is bestowing mercy, if it is a right that you have, it isn't mercy. If God bestows mercy on those who aren't interested in it, then it's not really mercy. Now, the passage that I comment up there, Acts 10.34, where it says God does not show partiality, is actually the discussion of Peter, remember Cornelius, and the discussion of should we share the gospel with the Gentile community, and Peter comes back to share with the church in Jerusalem. I have been shown... I have been shown that God does not show partiality between Jews and Gentiles. God is going to save people from every tribe and nation on this globe. He is not partial. Does that mean everyone is going to be saved? No, unfortunately not. So, as a judge, God does not show partiality. When we make judgments, he expects us to not show partiality. But God still chooses different groups to bestow his blessings, his grace and mercy upon at different times. Number two, somebody asks, well, what about evangelism? Why do we even bother with evangelism if... God's already picked the people who are going to be saved. And I throw a couple of different passages up there. You can basically go to the last chapter of any of the Gospels. And Jesus on his way back to heaven says, Go into all the world, make disciples, share the Gospel. 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, why do we practice evangelism if predestination is true? Number one reason. You ready for this? God tells us to. It's really as simple as that. God has commanded us to share the gospel with those that we come in contact with. Well, what good does it do? It does all the good in the world. Why? You see, we have this idea that predestination means that God is up in heaven randomly flipping a coin. And at some point when he flips that coin, if you're going to be saved, he's just going to grab you and take you. Remember the discussion that we had several weeks ago when we were finishing up the discussion of Romans 8.28? And I gave the story about being raised in a Christian family, going to church from, the, I think, the day I was born, and the opportunities that I had. Do you think all that was just accidental? Or do you think God had a plan? Do you think God had a story for me to get me here today? The answer is yes. God uses means to accomplish his ends. What does that mean? God wants to save someone and God will use the preaching of the gospel to save that person. Now, here's the phenomenal thing about it. God can use really strange and bizarre ways. Up to and including having a donkey sharing the, the message with you. Okay? We were actually discussing this, this week at work about the fact that sometimes we like the King James because it allows us to use the other word for donkey and get away with it. You see, if I, in my human mind, started thinking about, well, God has chosen, God is elect, I would go looking for the elect, and I would share the gospel with them. I mean, doesn't that sound like a win-win situation? I don't waste my time on all those unchosen people, and I have a guaranteed success because I've... But you know what? In my mind... If I were going to go look for the elect, in my mind, my parochial, I would go looking for people just like me. And you know what? God's not interested in people just like me. He's interested in real live human beings. And I am to share the gospel with all of them. And God, God will save some. I told you several weeks ago, uh, D. James Kennedy who developed the evangelism explosion program that was widely used across this country. In fact, Teresa was saved because this nice, sweet, elderly woman started asking her the evangelism explosion questions. If you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? If God asked you why I should let you into heaven, what would you say? And she gave all the right wrong answers. He should let me in because I'm a good person. Nope, you're not. And she shared the gospel, this sweet elderly lady, and led Teresa to Christ. D. James Kennedy eventually had to write a book 
about the fact that he is a five-point Calvinist because nobody believed him. How can you be an evangelist and believe in the sovereignty of God? I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect his answer would be, how can you not be an evangelist if you believe in the sovereignty of God? God commands us to share the gospel. God allows us to participate in his sovereign work to save people from death and destruction. It is interesting. I was listening to a a sermon, and actually I mentioned last week R.C. Sproul, and he commented that when he was in seminary, there were a group of them sitting around this class, and the professor asked the question, why should we practice evangelism? And he started with the first guy. And he worked his way around the room, and he said, I finally answered because God told us to. And he said, the professor knocked that answer apart. And he went to the next guy. And finally he gets to the end, and he knocked all the arguments around. And he said, why should we practice evangelism? And the professor says, because God told us to. He said, wait a minute, didn't I just say that? Yeah, but you let me talk you out of it. We in our human minds talk ourselves out of it. What if they don't like me? That's, that's the bigger reason. It isn't that we don't share because we believe, well, God's going to do it anyway. We don't share because we're scared of the rejection. We're scared of what God may say, I mean, what people may think and say about us. It has nothing to do with our misplaced theology. God is sovereign. God is saving humanity. And God wants, God allows us to be part of that. Don't think evangelism doesn't mean anything. God uses means to accomplish his ends. And it's fabulous. You can read biographies of people who were converted and you would look at them and you'd go, how in the world could God save that person? We sing the song all the time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Who wrote that? John Newton. What was John Newton's profession? He was a slave trader until God got a hold of him and then he became a pastor and wrote Amazing Grace. Charles Haddon Spurgeon fabulous British pastor believed very heavily in predestination and his prayer to God was God save the elect and then elect some more what the sovereignty of God gives us is the realization that they're not rejecting you they're rejecting God we are called to share We do not save people. God saves people. We are either obedient or not to the call of God in our lives. Don't think for a moment that any of this discussion has anything to do to not, to make you not 
have an obligation to share the gospel. The third point was not raised last week because y'all were all scared to death of it. (laughs) I know you. Do we have free will? Yes. Next question. Whenever anybody asks me, do we have free will, the first question I always ask back to them is, what do you mean by that? And they mumble something about making choices. So the obvious answer is yes, we make choices every day. We choose what we have for lunch. We choose what we uh, had for breakfast. We choose what we wore this morning. We make choices all the time. But we make choices constrained by who we are. I could decide right now in great sincerity that I'm going to walk outside and unaided by mechanical means, I'm going to fly around this building. I could choose to do that. And in fact, if I started at the top, I would die. Because it is not in my nature as a human being to fly without mechanical means. So choosing it is not an option because it's not part of my nature. Question. Back to Romans chapter 3. You notice I keep going back there, right? There's none who do good. There's none who are right. There's none who are... Everyone seeks after... Okay, here's the question. If Romans chapter 3 is true, and it is, and if you have free will, that you do, what are you going to choose? bad stuff of your own free will. You're going to choose to sin. You're going to choose to look God in the face and say, no. You're the little child, and you're going to go, no, 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 no. And you think you're a big shot because you did. And as the psalmist said, God just sits there and laughs. We have the ability to choose but we choose according to our nature. People who are large components, of, I mean, believers in the idea of free will, have this idea that I am the scholar sitting here reading the Bible, reading the Book of Mormon, reading the Quran, reading the sayings of Confucius, reading all of this, studying philosophy, and I, in my rational nature, look at all the evidence and I have a free will choice to choose which is best. But remember that life journey that I mentioned earlier that I had the whole lesson on several weeks ago? All of that has influenced how I look at all this information and how I make a choice. The reality is this. You're going to choose to accept Christ When God steps into your life and grabs you by the collar and whacks you up the side of the head and says, follow me. Now, it may not be quite that violent, but it might be. In the scripture, he takes Paul, who is fighting against him with every strength that he has, and he literally whacks him off his horse or donkey or whatever he was riding. Others, they're fishermen on the side of the road, and he just says, follow me. And they drop their nets, and off they go. We will respond 
when Christ, when God, calls us. So, do we have free will? Yes, we make choices. Do we have free will to make any choice? No, because we are constrained by our nature in the choices that we will make. It is interesting, there was actually an article in, um, I think it was last month's Atlantic Monthly, about modern science proving that there really is no such thing as free will. It had a long discussion of, and I didn't even know what this word meant, illusionism. You ever heard that word before? You can Google on it. It's on Wikipedia. It's the philosophy definition, not the art definition. It is the acknowledgement that we don't have free will, but you would live your life better if you thought you did, so we are going to let you think you do when we know you don't really have it. Why do they think that? They think that because I am simply a biological machine. That's all I am. Okay, forget this soul-spirit stuff. We know that doesn't exist, right? So you're just a biological machine. You are a computer. Now, I have worked with computers all my adult life. Okay? If you have the same computer program running and you put the same inputs into it, you're going to get the same outputs. It's called determinism. It's a deterministic system. Now, I may know that you working on your computer think your computer is possessed by a demon. Okay? The problem is, is that the computers are so complex that we think that they're making random choices because we don't understand the programming and all the inputs. But, you know, that's just because we're finite in our thinking. As we improve in our thinking, we can take the human computer, model it in a com real computer, and we can predict everything you're going to do. You have no free will. That's what modern science is telling us. It's interesting, years, years ago, I read a short story by, I think, Dostoevsky, the dream of a ridiculous man. And he was a ridiculous man because he thought he could make choices. What does the Bible say about that? The Bible says we're not just a biological computer. We are not just processing the bits that go in and sending bits out the other end. We are created in the image of God. We have a mind, a will, and a and emotions. We have, we do have a body. Don't deny that. We're not Gnostics who think the body is some illusion. We do have a body, but, but, we are so much more than that. It is interesting if you start reading the history of how people think about us as human beings, it matches the latest technology of the time. You know, Freud based a lot of his thinking on the fact that the best technology of the time was a steam engine. And, you know, a steam engine, you have this boiler and it builds up pressure, and sometimes you have to let the pressure out or it'll explode. So all this thinking that he produced came on, well, you've got, you're, you're this boiler and you've got to let the pressure out or you're going to explode. Well, that may be true or it may not be true, but it's an analogy drawn from the technology of the time. 
In the same way, the technology of the time today is the computer, and that's all you are according to modern science. We know better. We know that you are made in the image of God. And here's the phenomenal thing. You ready for this? You pick the worst person you can think of, either in the news or in your personal acquaintance. You think of the worst person you can imagine. That person was made in the image of God, and God can save them. Isn't that phenomenal? Judas, who sold out Christ for 30 pieces of silver, I believe could have repented and Jesus would have welcomed him back. Why? Because we're made in the image of God and we have value because of that. We're not just biological computers processing bits, even though it sounds really cool for a nerd like me. Okay? So, those were some of the questions that we had left over from last week. I got another one this morning. Good old-fashioned three-by-five card. Were the Jews predestined to reject Christ so that God could call Gentiles into a saving relationship with Christ? Did God harden the hearts of the Jews? Yes. Maybe. <laughs> Is it time to quit? I told you at the very beginning, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are dealing with the relationship with the Jews. We get sidetracked at the beginning of chapter 9 with the discussion of predestination, which is fine. I mean, it's a very important subject, and it is dealt with in that particular chapter. But we need to continue to remember that he's talking about the Jews, and I'm having to resist this great urge to jump to chapter 11 and tell you the end of the story. But I'm going to hint at it so that you know where we're really going with this. Not everyone who is in Abraham is really in Abraham, is in the covenant. Point number one, we talked about that last week. Point number two. Within the Jewish community, God has always and continues to save a remnant. That's the word that he's going to use. Remember in all those discussions about uh, Israel and Judah being carried off in captivity, God always saved a remnant. We see that in our sermon series that we're... That, uh, the staff is working through with Nehemiah. God is saving a remnant, and he's rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But here's the interesting thing that we see in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And it's actually pretty clear. God went to the Gentile community because the Jews rejected him. Why did he go to the Gentile community? To make the Jewish community jealous 
so they would return to the relationship with him. And here's the cruel thing. If the saving of the Gentiles came about because the Jews rejected him, how much greater will the blessing be when the Gentiles and the Jews together worship the Messiah, Jesus Christ? And that's chapter 11. So we're going to start, we're going to continue through chapter 9 today. All of this was the introduction. (laughs) We're going to continue with chapter 9, and we're going to talk about the Jewish community. Now, it's interesting, you can tell that he's kind of made a transition because he starts quoting the prophets a lot more in the, in the three chapters we're going to cover in the next several weeks. He's going to talk about the prophets because he wants to show, he wants to show that this was God's plan all along. And eventually, we are going to answer the question, maybe not today, Were the Jews predestined, and you have to note that the word predestined is put in quotes, to reject Christ? And the answer is, hmm, yes. Let's get a running start into it, because we um, kind of raced through the end of last week's lesson, because we didn't like verse 19 and following. Yes, please ask away. How can you have free will if you're predestined, is the question. I didn't answer that. (laughs) I am going to choose. I have the ability to choose. Okay? I have the ability to choose for lunch today to have grilled chicken. I happen to know that's what we're going to have. I have the ability to choose to eat grilled chicken or horse poop for lunch. Okay? We have a stable two doors over. I can get all the horse poop I want. (laughs) I have the ability to choose. Which am I going to choose? Come on. (laughs) I'm going to choose to eat the grilled chicken Of my own free will, I'm going to choose that. Okay? We as believers read the scripture and we see all the wonderful things that God provides for those who are in relationship with him. And we look at that and we say, how can anybody choose not to accept that? Yet we all know people for whom looking at the things of God is horse poop. You see, we're looking at it as in, oh, here's the wonderful things of God. Here's the miseries of the world. Why doesn't everybody choose the things of God? And that's my question. Why don't they? I've been in situations where you share the gospel with somebody whose life is a wreck. And they say, no. Why? We're looking at their lives saying, your life is horse poop. And I'm giving you filet mignon. 
they're looking at it and going, it may be horse poop, but it's better than what you're offering. And that's the bizarre thing. The free will, it's almost as if, and I hate to go down this path because this is a minefield, by the way. I've got this book. It's, I mean, it's available. I mean, there's a whole series of these books where they get different theologians and they talk about a particular topic. It's like four views of predestination. That's what this book is about. And one guy presents a view, and uh, one guy prevents, presents a view, and then the other three rebut it. Then the second guy prevents, presents a view, and the other three. And it, it, there's a whole series of them, and they're very good. But the one of predestination, I was just fascinated because when I got to the end of it, it's like the first guy says, okay, this is what free will means. If you can't do this, you don't have free will. The second guy, no, 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 this is what free will means. If you can't do this, then you don't have free will. And the third one, no, if this, okay, that's why I always ask, what do you mean by free will? If you mean I, as an autonomous human being, can choose or not choose to accept God on the basis of my own reason and desires alone, no. But I have free will because I choose what I want to choose. I choose what I want to choose. It's almost as if God comes along and he has to override that in order that we can see the glory of what he offers and then we choose because he's opened our eyes to the truth. I used the analogy four weeks ago when we first started talking about predestination. And I'll use it again because I think it is, it illustrates this point. Pelagianism. I go to the doctor, I'm not feeling well. You've heard me say this numerous times, but I'm going to say it again. I go to the doctor, I'm not feeling well. The doctor says, well, you eat too much junk, you don't exercise at all, your lifestyle is horrible. Fix your lifestyle and you will be healthy. That's Pelagianism. The belief that I have everything inside of me I need to be healthy. That's a heresy when it comes to salvation. Arminianism. I'm at the doctor. The doctor says you have a terminal disease, but here is the medicine to cure you. Take it and you will be cured. That is what I was taught growing up. Okay? Biblical, you can make a case for that. I can take it or I can not. Calvinism. I don't go to the doctor because I'm in the morgue. I'm dead. God comes to the morgue and gives me life. And what is the first thing I do after he gives me life? I praise God and I accept what he has given me because I know I could never have done it myself. The last two of those I believe you can make a biblical case for. I happen to think that Romans chapter 9 and Ephesians teaches that I was dead. And in my deadened state... What am I going to choose? I am not going to choose the things of God. So, do we have free will? Yes. What are we going to choose? Unaided 
by the illumination of the Word of God, by the Spirit of God in our lives. We're going to choose the wrong thing. But wait a minute, that can't be free will. Sure it is. Every day we choose what we want to choose. Okay? I'm not going to choose to eat the horse poop for lunch because I know it's disgusting. The unbeliever looks at submission to God as a thing to be avoided, not as a blessing to be encountered. You had a question. Right. We talked about that one last week, yeah. The hating the parent one. Yeah. It, it's a very harsh. Uh-huh. Yeah. But your first point is exactly where we need to go. The first point was God has not, ready for this? God has not totally rejected the Jews. He is still, and he will continue to, save some, and God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And that is what we see in chapters 9, 10, and 11. I told you a couple of weeks ago, I had a Lebanese friend who was a Christian, and he was just I mean, he didn't understand why we, the American Christian Church, gave a flip about the Jews. I mean, they're toast. Besides being wretched people. This is his view. Okay? God's done with them. They had a chance. They muffed it. They're done. Well, chapters 9, 10, and 11 doesn't teach that. It teaches that God's promise to them is still active, and God still has a plan for them. And in the midst of everything that happened, God has and continue to save a remnant. Let's read some of this before it's time to be done with. Maybe I won't start in verse 19. It'll just get us into more trouble. Let's start in about... 24, in the middle of a sentence. Even us, that would be us Gentiles, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And he who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This is from the first chapter of Hosea. You probably remember the first chapter of Hosea. If you want a lesson on how to have a good marriage, don't read Hosea. Very beginning, first, second verse, something like that. He tells Hosea to go out and marry a prostitute. Just go find one, marry them. 
And you'd like to think that that would mean they'd be happily married thereafter, but it's not. So he starts having children. Well, his wife starts having children. And the first one is named after some king that was killed. The second one's child's name was, anybody know this? No Mercy. (laughs) How would you like to name your child No Mercy? But he was making a point. And the third child's name was what? Not my people. God was using Hosea to demonstrate what the nation of Israel had done by turning their back on God. They, had chased, they were chasing after idolatry and harlotry. They were chasing after prostitutes. And in that first chapter, he gives this picture, though. You know, these are my people, and they've rejected me. But there's another group of people that I'm going to bring in to the fold. What does it say? Those who were not my people, who would that be? That's the Gentiles. That's most of us. Esther is not here. This is most of us. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. I'm going to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And what he's going to talk about in the next couple of chapters is this is great. This is fabulous for all of us who are Gentiles. But what does it do to the Jews? And in this very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now, you're a Jew, and you're reading this at the time of Paul. Now, you're a Jew who has converted to Christ, maybe, and you go, okay, I understand the gospel, but I'm still kind of special because, I, let's face it, I am a Jew, right? Or you're a Jew who has not converted to Christ, and you think, who are these upstarts? We have a relationship with God. They don't have a relationship with God. Go away. But God is saying, and God is saying to Paul, and God is saying to Peter, where were we a while ago? I don't show partiality. This is a new thing. In the New Testament, it talks about this being a mystery not a mystery as in a whodunit, a mystery as in something that was not revealed but is now revealed that God is going to create the church that is made up of believers of every tribe and nation, Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. That's the wonder of the gospel. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though, they, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. My mother and my father were good Jews. Their mothers and fathers were good Jews. Their mothers and fathers were good Jews. When it comes to being a good Jew, I'm as good as you can get. Aren't I in? No. No. Question. 
I was born in the United States. Isn't everybody born in the United States good people? Aren't we all getting to heaven just because we're good people, because we're born in the United States? No. No, no, no. But, but, God continues to save a remnant. Remember that. I love the story. He's going to tell it in a couple of chapters. You remember it back in, uh, what was it, Elijah? He has his big battle, and he runs off into the desert, and he's having a pity party. I mean, let's just face it. You know, he had the emotional high. After emotional highs come the emotional draining. He has a pity party. God, I am the only one in the world who is following you. You ever feel that way? Yeah. I usually have the other problem. Anyway, I'm the only person in the world that's following you. And God says, no, you're not. I've got 7,000 hidden away who have never bent the knee to Baal or the other gods. God always has a remnant that he is protecting through the midst of whatever. Yes, go ahead. those promises in the old testament just pick whatever one you want are still there okay the church did not replace the jews we're simply as we'll see later a branch that has been grafted onto the tree that's the picture that is used so the answer to the question is yes you can start looking at specific promises now there's specific promises and there's also specific curses and we can deal with those too unfortunately we didn't make it very far (laughs) i'm going to read to the end of the chapter okay and we'll pick it up next week in chapter 10 and isaiah cries out concerning israel though the number of the sons of israel be as the sands of the sea only a remnant of them will be saved For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay and without partiality, I will add. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. That's what we've been talking about chapters 1 to 8. But that Israel, who pursued a law that that would lead to righteousness, if they were capable of carrying it out, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We will pick up next week in verse 30 and into chapter 10 where we talk about the righteousness of the Jews, the righteousness of, righteousness of justification by faith alone, and we'll deal with that next week. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have called us. Thank you that you have allowed us to participate in your ministry to the world around us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.